you got a Bible, you can open to Matthew chapter 2 if you brought one with you this evening. If not, it'll be on the screen for you as we read it together. It's a text in Matthew chapter 2. You know, one of the, the problems at Christmas time is that some of these texts become so familiar with us, uh, to us year after year that they kind of lull us a little bit into kind of warm sentiment as opposed to actually um, piercing us and changing us. So my hope tonight is that as we read this text together and consider what it has to say to us, that God would show up and that God would work and that God would move and do what only he can do and bring change, not only a little bit, a little bit of warmth for our hearts, but changing our hearts. In Matthew chapter 2, we find the story after Jesus' birth of these wise men who come from the east to visit Jesus because they had seen his star rise. And whenever they come, they come to offer themselves up to this young uh, this, this infant king, as they offer gifts to him of gold and frankincense and myrrh. But in Matthew 2 records that story for us, beginning in verse 1, says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to, to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And be you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means among the rulers, or least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Listen, tonight we are gathered here in a church celebrating the birth of Jesus and there are folks who are gathered in churches all across our nation and maybe even across the globe on Christmas Eve as they go to services that are celebrating the birth of Jesus. There are people assembling in churches all across our land and across the world. But one other uh, institution or facility that's filled with people this time of the year are surgery centers. <laughs> right? Because everybody's trying to squeeze in that last surgery um, once they've hit their deductible in 2015 before it resets and rolls over in 2016, they got to start all over again, right? And so whether they're a surgery of necessity or a uh, surgery of luxury, people are trying to squeeze in those surgeries between now and December 31st because they can just get it done by then. Hopefully, the majority of it will be covered by their insurance because they've already hit that magical number called the deductible, Right. And so there are people getting surgeries all across our, our land now from now through the end of the year. And some of those surgeries are, are major surgery. They might have to open some up and do significant surgery on the inside of them. But many of those surgeries are perhaps what might be considered minor surgery or minimally invasive types of procedures. So years ago, uh, 50 years ago, there were certain procedures that had to be if you had to have that done, there was really a significant threat to your life because they would have to open you up uh, and go inside um, with utensils and 
tools to get inside that actually make a major incision in your body and peel you open to go and address whatever was wrong. But the advancements in modern technology have, 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 have sped forward to such a degree that many of those surgeries that 50 years ago, they were having to cut you from head to toe open to be able to fix what was going on. Now they can insert a little camera and some little tools that go in there and pull stuff out and move stuff around and fix stuff up. And they're called minimally invasive procedures. And many folks are having those as we kind of end this calendar year and look forward to resetting in 2016. But one of the things that I've found, particularly in our area uh, of, of, of the country, in our particular subculture, is that whenever you think about Jesus, many people like Jesus the same way they like their surgeries, minimally invasive. Minimally invasive, or better yet, non-invasive, right? Um, years ago, in order to see what was going on in your body, they might have to open you up, and now there's sonograms that they can take and see what's going on inside, and in many occasions, be able to determine whether or not you need surgery based on the sonogram, whereas before, they may have needed to do exploratory surgery. And many people like their Jesus the same way. They like him either non-invasive or minimally invasive, there are many folks this time of the year, whenever you look at Jesus, and there's many people talking about Jesus and people attending services where Jesus is being spoken of, but they really, what they really want whenever they think about Jesus, and particularly in this season of the year, is they want kind of a Ricky Bobby type Jesus, right? For those of you who've seen Talladega Nights, I don't necessarily, I'm not endorsing that movie, I'm not telling you to go out and rent that movie tonight and watch it as a family. Probably not a great idea on Christmas Eve. Um, but in that movie, there's a scene where Will Ferrell is praying, and Ricky Bobby's praying, he's saying grace at the table with his family. And as he says grace, he's praying to this tiny baby infant Jesus. Right? And he keeps calling tiny baby God and little baby Jesus and your eight pound, six ounce golden fleece diaper with your tiny little fat balled up fist. Right? And he keeps praying to infant Jesus and this tiny baby infant God over and over and over again. And finally, his wife looks across the table and she goes, you know, he grew up, don't you? And he goes, I do. But that's the Jesus I like to think of. You can think of Jesus however you want to think of him. You can think of grown-up Jesus. You can think of bearded Jesus. You can think of teenage Jesus. And his son erupts. I like to think of Jesus as this ninja who fights off the evil samurais. Right? And then his partner over here on his right goes, I like to think of Jesus as like this rock star with wings coming out of his back as he's playing shredding the guitar with Leonard Skinner, man. Right? And so all these people have these conceptions of Jesus in their mind how they like to think of Jesus. But almost often, these conceptions of Jesus are minimally or non-invasive. In other words, they like the thought of a Jesus who makes lots of deliveries but no demands. Right, all the FedEx trucks, trucks and UPS trucks and USPS trucks that are cruising around neighborhoods this evening trying to make those final deliveries before Christmas hits tomorrow. They're dropping off packages on every doorstep, it seems. And so they're making tons of deliveries. And we like to think of Jesus as the guy who just drops stuff on our doorstep, but he makes no demands. He doesn't say, if you want to come after me, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. He doesn't say you've got to lay down your life. He doesn't say you have to deny yourself because my Jesus is still that little dude in a diaper in a manger somewhere. That's how they think of him. Most of us, if we were to be honest at times, at some juncture in our life, we've wanted and desired this minimally invasive Jesus. We want a Jesus who is meek and mild, but not a Jesus who rules and reigns. The problem is, the problem with that is that the Bible doesn't allow for that. Doesn't allow for that. 
says, if you're going to come to him at all, here's what Jesus will do. He doesn't want to just make minimally invasive incisions into your body to rearrange some things. What Jesus wants to do is he wants to put you on the table and cut you from head to toe and open you up and give you a full-scale heart transplant. Because he demands all of your allegiance and all of your affection. He demands all of your love and all of your loyalty. To come to Jesus at all negates the fact that he can be minimally or non-invasive in our lives. And I think it's one of the things, exactly one of the things we see in this text that we've just read together this evening in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew's gospel is a gospel that's really about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is broken through into human history and there's a king who is ushering in that kingdom and his name is Jesus. And so at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus gets lifted up on a cross and he's crucified and he's buried and he's resurrected. But at the end of the gospel, all of a sudden Jesus is gone. So if the king is gone, where's the kingdom? And Matthew's gospel is written to a Jewish audience to answer that question. If Jesus is the kingdom, where's the kingdom? And from the very outset of Matthew's gospel, what you see in chapter 2 as his birth is recorded, you see that it's recorded. He's recorded as a ruler who would come, as a king. That what Jesus does, he doesn't, we can't just at Christmas look at the fact that Jesus came, but why he came. And in Advent, we've been seeing this at Redeemer for the last several weeks together, that he came to dwell among us. He came to deliver us from our enemies. He came to fulfill his promises, and he came to console our hearts. And here in this text, we see that Jesus Jesus has come to rule. He's come to reign. He is a king. In fact, when the wise men show up, as they travel to find this Jesus, this king that had been born, when they come to Jerusalem, they begin to ask Herod, who is king of the Jews at the time, they ask Herod about where this king had been born. They're asking about a monarch. They're asking about a ruler. They're asking about a a king. They're not asking about a therapist or a talk show host. Like, where's that dude? They're asking about a king. And then you drop down, and when Herod calls the scribes and the chief priests and asks them where the Christ was to be born, that word Christ is a Greek word that refers back to an office of individuals in the Old Testament that were these individuals that were known as the, the anointed ones. And one of the classifications of individuals in the Old Testament that were the anointed ones were the kings. They were anointed by God to serve and rule his people. And so they asked for the king. Herod asked where the king's to be born. And then you get to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which is the text that they cite in Matthew 2, 6. And it says, from you, Bethlehem, a ruler will come. A king would arise. See, from the very outset of Matthew's gospel, he's saying, Jesus, this infant who has been born in this manger, is the king of all creation. The one who by his very word spoke all things into being and by his very nature owns and possesses everything. And he's shown up in Matthew's gospel to lay claim on all that he has created. For he has come to rule. He has come to reign. He has come to exercise sovereignty and dominion. He has come to exercise authority. Jesus is a king. He's a king. Now that poses problems for people in this text and people that we know today, maybe even some of us in the room. And here's why, because there's all kinds of responses to the kingship of Jesus. The lordship of the authority of Jesus. There's all kinds of responses, but there's three of them in this text that I want us to drill down on quickly tonight. And they're they're this. First of all, 
One of the things that you see in, in response to Jesus coming to rule as the king is you see that there are some who respond to him with a great deal of indifference. If you look at the response of the chief priests and the scribes when Herod summons them and asks them where the Christ was to be born, it's almost like it's like clergy week on Jeopardy, okay? And you got all these dudes lined up behind these podiums with their names written on front, and they got these buzzers in their hands, and Herod asks them where the Christ was to be born, and they all buzz in at the same time, Micah 5, 2, out of Bethlehem of Judea shall come a ruler. Not, not that, but they would say, what is, right? Or where is Bethlehem of Judea? Out of you shall come a ruler. And so they know the Old Testament backwards and forwards. They had been instructed in it and memorized it from the time of their childhood. They knew it. They were so well acquainted with it. And yet they can rattle it off their lips. But it has no effect upon their lives. They tell Herod, he's born in Bethlehem. And they look at the magi, they're like, he's over there somewhere, go find him. We have really no desire to go see him. We're not going to go greet this king that had been prophesied to be born, who would, who would restore everything that has been broken, who would redeem everything that has been lost. There's an there's a utter indifference about it. For them, Jesus is almost like the answer to a trivia question. So they respond with great indifference. And listen, there are people who do the same today. There are people who respond to Jesus and his claims with a great deal of indifference. J.C. Ryle, who was a bishop in Liverpool in the 1900s, said this. He said, how often the very people who live nearest to the means of grace are those who neglect them most. There's only too much truth in the old proverb, the nearer the church, the further from God. Familiarity with sacred things has a dreadful tendency to make men despise them. There are many who from residence and convenience ought to be first and foremost in the worship of God and yet are always last while there are many who might well be expected to be last who are always first. I think he's absolutely right and I think there are people in our culture, there are people in this city, there are people in this nation, there are people all across the globe, maybe even some in the room tonight who your response to Jesus has been one of utter indifference over the years. Maybe you, were, maybe you, maybe you heard the Bible from the time that you were in your mom's belly, right? coming to church from the time that you were conceived. Maybe you grew up in Sunday school receiving instruction, receiving lessons. Right? Maybe you saw all the, the progressives in technology from felt board. You might remember felt board days. Felt board Jesus. Right to the videos, to now multimedia presentations. Maybe you saw all the lessons, received all the instruction. Maybe you even got private Christian education. And your parents sent you to a Christian school to reinforce those things that you were being taught in the home. Maybe your parents sat down with you for devotionals and opened the Bible and read the Bible as a family and prayed together as a family. Maybe you went to a Christian college got involved in FCA. Maybe you were a part of a campus ministry. Maybe you've been in churches all of your adult life. But for some of us, that's true about us, and we're so close in convenience. Was, was, how does Ralph say it? In residence and convenience. It's right there. You know, there's an utter indifference about it in the way that we live. An utter indifference about it in the way that we live. And as one other commentator said, People pack pews each Sunday, but they live as though there is no king upon the throne but them. No king upon the throne of their lives but them. 
Is that you? Is there an indifference about Jesus tonight? It's kind of like a trivia answer to a trivia question. I watched the History Channel documentaries. I saw what they said. I can give you some answers. Second response that we see in this text is there are some who not only respond with indifference, but also with opposition. See, for some, Jesus is the answer to a trivia question. For others, he is the most immense threat they've ever faced in their life. And listen, if Jesus has come as a king, if he's come to rule, then he does threaten all of us. Every single one of us. Look at it, and Herod realizes that. Look at his response in the text. He, he calls the Magi over to him and he says, listen, when I have this like, closed-door meeting with you guys right, in private, I want you to tell me when you saw the star. I want you to go and find where he is. I want you to come back and tell me. And I want to go worship him too. Right, don't, don't keep a brother over here. I want to come and give him some, some nucks right over there in Bethlehem. I, 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 want, I, I want in on that too. But the text tells us later on that they were warned in a dream that Herod had ill intentions about uh, his request to them, and so they didn't go back through Jerusalem. And in fact, what you see is that there's unfolds as the text in Matthew continues. It unfolds that Herod would go on this genocidal quest as he sought to eradicate all infants under a certain age in the, in the town of Bethlehem. So Joseph and Mary take Jesus, worn in a dream, and they flee to Egypt to escape his wrath. Why does Herod go to such lengths? Because he's threatened by the arrival of this king. He knows that if Jesus is the king of the Jews, then he is not. He knows that if Jesus is on the throne, then he has to take the the second chair or the third chair or the fourth chair. That if Jesus is behind the wheel, then he's in the back seat. Listen, Jesus threatens his rule and Jesus threatens ours as well. Listen, a part of what it means to come to Jesus Right? is that we can't come with him having minimal invasion or non-invasion into our lives, but actually to come to him means that what we do is we open up our hands and we relinquish control. And Jesus, for some of us, we've responded with opposition to him and our hostility to him because he's a threat to us because he threatens our ability to manipulate and control our own lives. And so we may have these objections about who Jesus is and who the Bible teaches, what the Bible teaches, but underneath many of those objections to the Christian faith, whether that be historical objections or moral objections, underneath many of those objections, what ultimately is at the root of all of those, many of those objections is the fact that we just don't want to let go. We just don't want to surrender. We just don't want someone else to have the authority in our lives. We just don't want to bend our knee and bow our hearts to anyone other than ourselves. And so there's a hostility or an opposition to him because he threatens the control that we have in our lives. So some respond to him with indifference, some with opposition, but notice Thirdly, some respond to him, not with indifference or opposition, but with adoration. And I think what the te- Matthew's telling us in this text is that to come to Jesus at all. Listen, Herod stays in Jerusalem. He wanted to go to Bethlehem to kill Jesus. The wise men stay, or, or the, the scribes and chief priests stay in Jerusalem. They have an indifference to going to welcome and receive this king. But the wise men, the magi, when they come to Jesus, 
What do they do? They don't come in and go, man, he's so cute. When they come to Jesus, they see him, and the text says they fall on their knees and they worship. They come and adore him. They come and, and open themselves up and offer themselves to him in recognition of the fact that he is king. He has come to rule. He has come to reign. He has come to stake a claim on everything and everyone that he's created, including them and including me and including you. And so when they come to Jesus, to come to him at all, Matthew says, is to offer all that we have and all that we are up to him. And anything less is not really coming to him. Anything else is still us trying to retain control. Anything less is us still just thinking that he's irrelevant. Now listen, these last two responses are the only two that logically make sense because if Christmas is true and if Jesus is the word in flesh, if as we sang earlier that he is clothed in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. If that's who Jesus is, if he's the king who has come to rule and shall reign forevermore, even as we sung tonight, if that's who Jesus is and the Bible says that it is, if that's who he is, then option one doesn't make any logical sense whatsoever. Listen, you can't respond to Jesus with indifference. If somebody shows up on your doorstep tomorrow and they knock on your door and you open the door and they say, I own you. <laughs> you can do one of two things. You can slam the door in their face or you can step on the threshold and bring it, right? Right? You can, you can fight against them or you can say, yeah, you know what, you do. You can go with them. But if somebody shows up on your doorstep tomorrow knocking on the door and says, I own you, you wouldn't go, eh. That's irrelevant. Why? Because when somebody stakes out a claim, right, it pushes people to one side of the spectrum or the other. And those who have responded with indifference all their lives, what it really means is they've never really come to see that Jesus is king. Because if you see that he's king, it pushes you in one direction or the other. Either you oppose and are hostile and you hate the fact that there's someone outside of yourself that would have authority and rule in your life. Or like the Magi, you get on your knees and you worship. And you say, here I am. Everything I have is yours. Now some of you tonight, you may be saying, listen, I've never really thought of it that way. And listen, I, I want to come to Jesus. I want to get on my knees and say, here I am. Everything that I have is yours. Um, but does he really know what I've, where I've been? Does he really know what I've done? Like, how would, if I come to him, how would he respond to me? Because, listen, man, I can give you not just a Christmas list, but I can give you this other list of all the ways in which I've kicked and all the ways in which I've punched and all the ways in which I've rebelled and all the ways in which I've fought his sovereign and saving rule in my life. How would he respond to me? And here's what you need to see tonight. Here's what you need to see, that if you want to come to him, he will by no means turn you away. If there's a desire in your heart to come to him, he will by no means shut you out. 
And here's why. Because in his, in his incarnation is his declaration of the fact that you would not wander the fields of this life alone and the fact that he would lovingly walk alongside of you. Listen, in that text in Micah that the chief priests and scribes cite in Micah 5 2, they not only talk about this ruler who would come out of Bethlehem, but what he would do, that he would shepherd his people, that he would shepherd them, that he wouldn't be a king who would be far removed on some high throne and not involved in the lives of his people to give guidance and protection. Listen, to shepherd in the Old Testament, there were shepherds in Jesus' day. There were shepherds in the fields who were tending the flocks, and there were shepherds in the temple who were tending the flock of Israel. The the chief priests and, and the religious leaders and the kings were known as shepherds because they guided and they governed the people. And Micah says the one who would come as king would also come as a king who shepherds, a shepherd king who would have all authority, majesty, might, and power, but he would come alongside to guide and lead and direct. In the Old Testament, God is called our shepherd. In places like Psalm 68 and Psalm 23, in places like Psalm Psalm 23 and Isaiah 40, God is called the shepherd to guide and lead and provide and protect. And listen, What Micah is saying about Jesus in Matthew 2, 6, a citation from Micah 5, 2, what he's saying is this, this would be a shepherd king. Not only would he be a shepherd, but he would be the shepherd, the good shepherd, because Jesus says in John's gospel that the good shepherd, listen, he doesn't abandon his flock, but what he does when danger approaches is he lays his life down for the sheep. He lays his life down for the sheep. He doesn't see himself as one who is far removed from their plight, but he enters into it. So he becomes like us in all manners, the author of Hebrew tells us, except sin to guide and provide and protect and to lead. Listen, if you want to come to Jesus and bow down and give everything that you have and everything that you are, he will by no means turn you aside because he came to seek you out. In the 1860s, there was a hymn writer named John Samuel, John Stone, Samuel, I'm, I'm going to get, uh, that's like really good, right? Samuel John Stone, there you go. He wrote a hymn entitled, The Church is One Foundation. And in the first verse, right out of the gate, I want you to hear what he says. He says, the church is one foundation, it is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. And then listen to what he says, from heaven, he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her and for her life. He died. He died. He came from heaven to seek you out. And so if you want to come to him, he will by no means turn you aside. Because he came after you. He came for you. He came that you wouldn't have to walk and wander through the fields of this life alone, but that he would guide you and protect you and provide for you. And he came to lay down his life in your place as any good shepherd would as the good shepherd would. So if you want to come to him, he will take you just as you are, with nothing really to offer other than yourself. 
Listen, at the, at the end of uh, the live, live action release that Disney released earlier this year of Cinderella, now, I, I, I got my man card right here. I'll take it out and set it down on the table for you, all you, all you fellows in here. Um, but listen, at the end of that movie, I was watching it with my family. We were there. Um, and and you, know, you know the story. Many of you have seen the cartoon version. Maybe you've seen this live action version as well. But at the end of the story, Cinderella um, has, has, you know, her, her mom has died. Her father has died. She's now living with her, her uh, evil stepmother and stepsisters. And they're cruel and malicious uh, and abuse her. Until the, the prince um, uh, offers up this invitation to come to the ball. They wouldn't let her go to the ball. So she stays home in tears. But then she, her fairy godmother shows up. And there's this big pumpkin carriage out there with all these horses and these uh, coachmen. And now she's got this dress. She looked like she'd been in the salon and got her hair did. And she got her nails painted. Right? She's, ready to, she's decked out, ready to go. She shows up at the ball and catches the prince's eye and he is infatuated with her and they dance and then the clock strikes 12. And as it strikes 12, she realizes she's got to hightail it back to the house because all this stuff is about to come crumbling down around her. And she gets back to the house just in time. But the prince is so captivated by her that he wants to seek her out. And so he spares no expense. In the live action version, he spares no expense of traversing the entire kingdom until he finally reaches the final home in the kingdom, which is their home. And so they open the door and the captain of the guard comes in with a slipper and tries it on Cinderella's stepsister's feet. And they try to squirm and squeeze and push their foot in that thing as hard as they possibly can to no avail. And when they think their search has finally come to an end, they turn to head out the doors. And when they do, they hear a voice singing from the attic. And it's Cinderella. And at this point in the story, in the live action version, the prince unveils himself because he had been a part of this um, quest. He'd been going along as one of just one of the other men in the army. And he looks at his captain of the guards and he says, go investigate. So he goes upstairs into the attic and finds Cinderella and says, Cinderella, who, what is your name? Cinderella, come down. Your king has requested to see you. And at this point in the story, the narrator kicks in with one of those penetrating questions that any of us would ever ask or answer. The narrator kicks in and asks this question, would who she was, who she really was, be enough? Because this time, there was no magic, there was no gown, there was no hair, there were no nails. She was in the peasant dress. Would she be enough? But who she really was, not this person that she had been fixed up to be, but who would who she really was be enough for the king? The narrator goes on, says there is no magic to help her this time. And this is perhaps the greatest risk any of us will ever take to be seen as we truly are. And she walks before the prince and the prince says, who are you? And she responds, Cinderella. And I am no princess, and I have no carriage, no parents, no dowry. In other words, I have nothing to offer you. Nothing. I'm just a peasant. I'm not a princess. And then she says, I don't even know if that slipper is going to fit. But if it will, will you take me as I am, as a peasant, with no riches, with nothing, nothing, 
to make me appealing in your eyes, to strengthen the kingdom. And the prince looks back and he says, of course I will. But only if you will take me as I am. An apprentice who's still learning his trade. And listen, as I watched the movie and as it unfolded, I was just, I mean literally, I'm just captivated by that scene. I'm going, that is the gospel. That is the gospel right there. One of the most beautiful portrayals of it I've seen in cinematic theater in a long time. And then the prince comes out and says, only if you'll take me as I am, an apprentice learning his trade. I was like, ugh, that ruins the illustration. Jesus is not an apprentice. But then I thought, as I thought about it more, here, it, it hit me. Here's what you have. You have this king who has everything to offer. Everything to offer. And this peasant who has no princess, who has nothing to offer but herself. And this king who had all power, majesty, and might in all of the kingdom is a king. He's king now. He's no longer the prince because his father has died at this point in the movie. But he looks at her and he is so saturated with humility that it's just dripping out of his pores. You have a king who's dripping with humility that says, of course I will. But only if you will take me as I am. Listen, how can you be sure that if you come to Jesus and you say, I'm all in. Look, I'm pushing all my chips to the center of the table and I'm betting everything on you, Jesus. I'm offering everything that I have to you, everything that I am. How do you know he will receive you? Because you too have a king who is dripping with humility. A king with all might, majesty, and power who was born in a manger, not in a palace. A king who Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, this king dripped humility all the way to his death. Did not come to be served, but to serve. Did not come to take, but to give. You have a king who is so saturated with humility that it's dripping out of his pores. And so when you come to him, if you want to come to him, and say, everything that I have is yours. He will by no means turn you away. He will take you just as you are if you will take him just as he is. Listen, there can be no minimally invasiveness about Jesus. He is a king who has come to rule. But the way in which he does it, the way in which he does it, is the most beautiful, the most beautiful and intriguing kingship ever known to man. Where are you tonight? Is there an indifference in your heart? It's not logical if there is. Is there an opposition to him? It's understandable. You don't want to give up control. But for those of you who want to say, I'm all in, and I'm all his. Everything that I have is his. I'm going to bow down in worship. 
We're going to do just that. Don't you pray with me? Father, we come tonight thanking you for your mercy and grace, thanking you for your goodness. Father, we confess that there is nothing about us that would make us appealing in your sight. God, there is nothing about us that would make us um, uh, people that, that can offer anything to you other than ourselves. God, we are just peasants. We are not royalty. But God, we recognize that you, as a great king, great king over all the earth, who has come to rule, has done so in a way that is saturated with humility. And so God, for those who want to take a step toward offering all they have and all they are tonight, God, I pray, I pray, God, that you give them courage to do so. So that this Christmas wouldn't just be about their hearts being warm, but their hearts being changed. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.